We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Support for this podcast comes from U.S. Bank. U.S. Bank wants to know how you reward yourself because they have cards that make every day more rewarding. Are you a points order, cashback guru, low intro APR lover? With U.S. Bank, it's up to you because they have the cards to fit your lifestyle. So earn more whether you're shopping at a gas station or a grocery store, even while planning a staycation. Learn more at usbank.com slash credit card. U.S. Bank credit cards are issued by U.S. Bank National Association N.D. Some restrictions may apply. Member FDIC. Welcome into the Rotowire NFL podcast. It is the playoffs. I'm your host, John McAgney, joined as always by Mario Puig. We are diving deep into the wild card round of the NFL postseason, an unprecedented one in which we have 14 teams uh, playing in the in the postseason this year. We got the extra team. We only have one team on by in each conference. That sets up a beautiful three-game slate on each day this weekend. I'm really, really excited for it, so we're going to dive into all of those games for this weekend. In addition to that, we are also going to kick off our draft uh, discussions and dr- our draft content over here on the Rotowire NFL podcast. After we get done with the six wild card games, we are going to dive into Mario's Dynasty Watch, uh, get started out with the first five receivers that he has ranked on his board right now. So a lot to get to there on the back half of this podcast as well. But let's let's kick things off, Mario. It's unfortunate that we can't really have a, a packed house for, for this uh, particular game uh, specifically, but oh well. But Bills 
getting to host a playoff game in the first for the first time in God knows how long, uh, going up against the Colts. Bills six and a half point favorites in this one. The over under sitting at fifty one and a half. Uh, so this. I mean, the the Bills are playing arguably the best football of anyone in the league, at least in the AFC right now. And the fact that they're at home, you know, that I think this is a, an absolute dead spot for Phillip Rivers, at, you know, going on the road to Buffalo. I know that the crowd won't be a thing, but Rivers outside of a dome at this stage of his career with his arm in its current form, asking him to do anything through the air in Buffalo is going to be problematic for Indianapolis I I think that with that being said maybe Jonathan Taylor ends up kind of being a key to to keeping the Colts in this one um if they if they're able to get something going on the ground against the Bills but what what is your um initial read here for this Colts Bills game well I guess if you just do the kind of basic math on this game you get a conclusion not unlike what the spread is you know Buffalo by seven Buffalo by something comfortable or another maybe even buffalo winning by a lot but i feel like there's there's it's one of those games one of those matchups for me where i think the results might be more like drastic or novel and then like the closeness of the game the closest of the match might really indicate because i feel like the bills are just one of those teams like if it's going to go wrong for you against them they blow you out because it's it's basically like you've you've lost to them because you don't have the personnel or the ideas to counter the firepower threat posed by their offense and if the offense is working then it will work the whole game and if it if it uh sputters though that's when you have a chance to beat them and so it's like either i feel like it's one of these things where either the colts win by like three or four or the bills win by like two or three or four or the bills win by like 14 or 17 or something like that. Cause it's just hard for me to imagine an, a truly uneven game from Josh Allen. I guess, I guess there is that recent example of like the Pittsburgh game where he struggled in the first half and they made adjustments, uh, came out and did something different in the second half. I just don't know what kind of adjust. I just, I, I guess I also expect Matt Aberflus to do good adjustments on the, on the, the, the Colts defense over the course of the game. So um, I know this is all sounding uh, airheaded and rambling and it, and it is, but I, I basically just think like you, if you lose by the bills at all in this setting, they do cover. And if, uh, if the Colts cover, I feel like it's like a pretty good, like more chance than usual for this statement. Like it means that they won the game mm-hmm. because uh, it's like if, if Allen's there, there's just not really anything else to happen. You know, if, if he's, if he's there and he's producing like he usually does, there's just not really, it doesn't really matter what the other answers are to the various questions we could have. It's like, yeah, it's going to be six points, at least seven points, at least that's all we really need to, to say. So the way it can go in the Colts favor though, it'll take a couple things, a couple things they can do, but it's like, they need to do both of them. And one of them is they need to confuse Josh Allen on defense. They need Josh Allen to conclude something before the snap and they need him to be wrong. And if he's wrong, they need to make him pay for it. They need to get sacks. They need to force fumbles. They need to get interceptions. And that stuff, I think, uh, despite how unstoppable Allen has looked at times this year, I don't buy the idea that they're like unstoppable. I think it's just if if you if you face them on certain terms, they are unstoppable, and there are a way to change those terms. Uh, easier said than done. But basically, you got You got to get Allen misunderstanding things, and if he does, his his nature to kind of 
just do goofy stuff will always be there and you can mm. always bring it back out if you stress them. It's just hard to stress them when they go, you know, f- three or four wide with not just Diggs, not just Beasley, but Gabriel Davis, John Brown, Isaiah McKenzie, uh, putting all that on the field. And then de- as a defense, having to deal with the fact that a- Allen can put it anywhere on the field and that Allen can run if uh, either your pass rush isn't getting there or if your pass rush gets there and misses. It's just these are a lot of ways for Allen to stay on his script. But if you take him out of it, he still is going to be that guy who just kind of, you know, goes into improvising and and kind of uh, just just lets his lesser judgment show up because right now he's following a script it's not really about judgment it's pretty simple it's just like he's looking before the snap like oh these guys are on this guy this guy's digs is over here well i know they can't cover them so i'll just wait for you know my fourth drop and then fourth step in the drop and then i'll throw it over here like he's he's making conclusions like that before the snap and he's being right about them so Aberflus, the indianapolis coordinator needs him to look at something before the snap needs him to be wrong uh, they're going to need Kenny Moore probably to show up with a couple timely blitzes. They they need him to knock a ball out probably. But if they do things like that to throw off Buffalo for a drive or two here and there, and if in that scenario they give the ball to Taylor, not Naheem Hines, Taylor, and then get to the end zone, that's a scenario where you can maybe negotiate a different outcome. And it, and it would be, uh, you know, it's it, if 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 this is the scenario where it's something other than Allen just lighting you up, then it opens up the possibility of getting Allen in multiple pressure spots, which still doesn't mean you're going to win. It's still, you know, a perilous situation and it's, it's a good, re- there's a lot of good reasons why the Colts are underdogs, but if they get points ahead of the bills and, and if they stick with Taylor, that's a way to create like a constant point source for themselves, you know, a reliable point source for themselves while the bills are, are kind of put under this new stress of having to, renegotiate their offense on the fly in the playoffs against a, a defense that's been one of the league's best and, and has probably one of the league's better coordinators running it. But I don't know if uh, – I don't know how much the, their odds, uh, the Colts' odds of confusing Allen and, and, and getting him to make mistakes really is because I know that uh, two years ago when the Colts got to the playoffs, they first beat the, the Texans. Yes. And Bill O'Brien's predictable route combos were no match for Aberflus and his, his zones. He just, he just knew it all, knew the playbook going in. Texans couldn't get anything going. And the next week they played against the Chiefs. And they were kind of a trendy upset pick for, against the Chiefs. I was in what on happened, that. Uh, I think I might have been too. <laughs> I, was, I was at least like worried about it. Um, but I get, we get there and the Chiefs just go four wide pretty much right away in the game. And it's like, what the hell? The, the Colts are staying in their 4-3. They're putting Darius Leonard on whatever, Sammy Watkins or something. And they just got lit up all game. Mm. So I don't – like this is this is kind of like Aberflus facing that same test and I would be kind of surprised if he had as bad of an answer as he did the first time. Right, yeah. No, you, you definitely study to, for the makeup exam, uh, definitely. So um, I think you, you lay out a really good case as far as like the, the path to the Colts do, you know, pulling the upset. And, you know, the, I think the listeners, if they've been listening all, all year long, that, you know, this will be kind of along the lines of what I've been saying all along. It's just, I think that Philip Rivers is just too big of a limiting factor for, for, yeah. for, for them to needs, overcome. If he affects the game, it's only in a negative sense for the Colts. They have to hide him. They need Taylor to win it on offense. And to the extent that Rivers is throwing the ball, they need to try to keep it play action heavy. They need to keep it, 
you know, ho- hopefully getting things like the running game going and then getting the defense to lean forward a little bit. Play action. I would throw it to Mo Ali Cox, but uh, I, th- I guess we have more so reason to believe it's going to be like Jack Doyle or something. So that's bad. And the more Rivers throws, the, the higher scoring this game is, the worse that it is for the Colts. Because yes. any scenario where there are a lot of points scored, it's like, that's probably 60% the Bills putting it up because we know Rivers can't do it. Right. And yeah, Indianapolis just not really built for for those track meets. And if there is a track meet, it means that their defense is letting down and, and they need their defense to step up in order for them to win. So um, I, I definitely like your read on this as well, where, where you said that um, if the Bills cover, they, they might emphatically cover. And if, if it's Indianapolis covering, it might be because they actually just pulled the upset straight up um, over over Buffalo. But um, either way, I'm very excited for, for this one. This will be a, a fun way to, to kick off Wild Card Weekend. Anything else to add here before we move on to Rams-Seahawks? Uh, not really. I, I, I guess I would pick uh, Buffalo more so to win it because as much as Aberflus is smart and as much as he's done a really good job and his, his defense is good, it's like that that four wide problem is a problem still. You can't you can't run cover two against four wide. You know, it's like eventually you need somebody to, to man up, cover somebody manned up. And uh, if it'd be one thing if they had a viable quarterback on their end to, to, to help keep up with that. But it's like I think I think basically it's, it's like a dam that can't hold up over as much time as they're likely to need to to win it. Yeah, I, I don't think so either. Um, you, looking ahead just quickly, do you think Indianapolis gets in on the market for a veteran quarterback again that this offseason? Who goes after like a uh, Stafford? Yeah, now they could sign Cam Newton. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I I have no idea what to think. <clears throat> They're not going to be in a great spot for picking a quarterback. Certainly, and Jacob no. Eason probably sucks. Yep. So uh, I don't know. I I don't know. I I'm, I'm disappointed in Frank Reich these days. I, I try to answer questions like these, like, well, what would make sense? And it's like that's wrong. What wouldn't make sense? That's what they'll do. And I don't know what it is. Yeah, man. Uh, yeah, the, uh, the Rivers experiment. Just this roster is so solid. Otherwise, it just. Uh, you got a killer some. defense, yes. but yeah, it's, you, you need a quarterback. You can't do this thing. No, no. I, or well, if you have this quarterback, you really do need a Mike Evans, Chris Godwin, Antonio Brown sort of deal. <laughs> and you don't have that as much as I like T.Y. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, they're, they're still kind of looking for, for – I think, you know, guys like, like Pittman and, and eventually Paris Campbell will, will you know, round oh, totally. out a nice receiver ro- rotation there. a huge there. loss. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but yeah, either, either way, for as far as – what they currently have in 2021, I don't think it sets up well enough for them to to pull it off on Saturday. Let's go Rams Seahawks. This is one of the tougher ones of this entire weekend to figure out. I feel pretty strongly about the the rest of the games on this one, but the Seahawks just played such an uninspiring brand of football down the stretch. I just don't really know what happened to them. I guess maybe post like the Eagles Monday nighter or something like that. And then the Rams, they're, they're hard to figure out. Plus they have the injury situation with, with Jared Goff um, dealing with that thumb. He just got surgery on what, like a week ago. Um, So limited practice Wednesday, you figure he's going to do, they're going to do everything to get him on the field. But it, it golf playing through, I mean, any quarterback playing through a thumb injury on their throwing hand, it's just that's really, really tough to negotiate, in my opinion. So they're going to have to yeah. run, run the ball, I, I would imagine, a fair bit to, to really keep things comfortable as far as golf is concerned. Seattle, pretty good against the run, allowing less than four yards per carry. So 
I think that just the the fact that the Rams offense might not be clicking at at, at all cylinders um, because Goff is dinged up and because they might might have to go a little bit more run heavy than than is their nature. I think it plays into Seattle's hands well enough to where Seattle wins. But I'm way less optimistic on like the Seattle ceiling for twenty for this uh, postseason than I was three weeks ago, four weeks ago. Yeah, honestly, I don't really have a good theory as to why they've been struggling i i have my prior bias that i i kind of think russell wilson's not as good of an intermediate passer as people think like i i think he's overall a truly great quarterback like hall of fame worthy etc but i think you can give a player that sort of credit and still say they're not perfect and i think for russell wilson the reason he's not a perfect player uh is just that he doesn't really have the middle range outcomes like he needs either uh, like he can he can throw screens and stuff like i know he did that at north carolina state but where he's really at his best is the deep ball yeah and if you as much as i don't want to lend any sort of credibility to brian schottenheimer or pete carroll about uh, running the ball i think running the ball is actually pretty important in football but not the way they do it like it i think you can be someone like i'm considered like uh you know, the, the idiot who just loves running in I formation and stuff uh, <laughs> in this current environment where everybody who who uh, uh, the people that, that reflexively vomit be, when someone runs on second and ten. Yeah, it's like the average uh, expert in, in a lot of fantasy football media these days is, is someone who like actually vomits. They feel actual illness when they see a running back living indoors. Uh, rather than like on the streets or in some gutter somewhere. Yes. And as someone who believes something other than that, I'm I'm the extremist who is like, hey, what if we did try to run the ball sometimes? What if what if maybe that has worked in the past and certain examples and maybe it can be repeated here? Um, I still think Schottenheimer and Carroll go way overboard with the run. Sure. And you know, it's there's you can go in between thirty or twenty eight att- pass attempts per game. And like the 45 that whatever those other freaks want to see would look like I'm in there as always. The moderate position is the correct one. Uh, The the 35 (laughs) attempt range is more what I'm looking at. And uh, the problem is with Wilson. If you need that number to get higher, you can't just make them all deep shots. The defense will eventually just go and sit on certain parts of the field if you only throw to certain parts of the field. And I don't know if Wilson's really the guy to hit the intermediate when the defense is sitting at his favorite bomb spots deep. And the Ra- um, the so- Rams are like also one of the few teams that you could say like you could you could feel relatively okay trusting them against a Russell Wilson offense that has to throw it a little bit more than they would like. Yeah, so the Jalen Ramsey part of of the Rams defense has worked basically flawlessly this year and they've Brandon Staley, this new defensive coordinator is really good. Yes. He's clearly come in with good ideas and he clearly has the kind of personnel that he needed to execute them. And as much as you don't really, as much as you don't at all want to bet against DK Metcalf, let alone in the sense of what about the third time this year? Do you want to bet against him? And that's one of those where it's like, Oh man, no, I don't want to bet the third time. And yet uh, Jalen Ramsey has kind of been the guy who wins that third time also mm. uh, all year. So I, I don't really know what gives there, but I think that you can feel, or at least I feel like the, the Seahawks are correctly favored. And that doesn't, this makes me feel nervous though, because I'm looking at covers and it says 59% of the bet volume is on the Seahawks, but the Seahawks spread has gone from minus five to minus three and a yeah. half. So that sucks. I wish I didn't, I wish that wasn't happening. <laughs> but uh, I got to I kind of got to stick with my initial intuition, which is that, 
Uh, I think as great as the Rams' defense is, their running game is a potential zero here. Uh, not just because I think it's not actually that healthy. I don't think Cam Akers has looked that good. I don't think Daryl Henderson has actually been worse than him. And that I think, and I think like the offense is. Uh, commitment to Acres and ch- going away from Henderson has is more what you do when you're out of ideas than what you do when you have a good idea. Uh, that's definitely going to work. I feel like it's more they did that just like oh, we got to see if something gets better, and they kind of stuck with it. Uh, understandably enough, like Acres is a good prospect and he's he's done a good enough job this year, but like so is Henderson. Um, so I I think that uh, and it's you know other than that uh, what was it the the stupid Patriots game mm-hmm. their running game has been trash for I don't know all year so. I think that uh, the the Rams offense is at risk for basically a zero here, like not not a shutout, but just, you know, a total dud of a game uh, because Goff is not great to begin with. If his thumb is busted, I don't think he's as good as Wolford. I don't think the running game is going to show up in any sort of dominant way. Meanwhile, it's like, yeah, I don't necessarily think Chris Carson or whoever is going to have a big game against a really good Rams defense. But I do think Russell Wilson alone is worth more than the entire Rams offense in this game. And I think the C- the Seattle defense is better than people realize. Like, they've had a lot of shuffling personnel all year. They had a lot of injuries at corner to begin the year. Mm-hmm. Quentin Dunbar isn't coming back. But Shaq Griffin at one spot, Ugo Amadi, DJ Reed, they've been playing a little bit more together. Rarely do teams get worse the longer they're playing together. And when you have a lot of new personnel, you you, you got to be ready for the, for the bad initial loadout but they're getting a little better carlos dunlap is a hugely talented player and they added him no one talked about that at all he's been making an impact when he's out there that kind of stuff is is are trends that i think are meaningful and and definitely happening right now and it doesn't show up at all if you look at the season long numbers and i think that's i not that i want to not that i have any reason to actually believe that i'm right but i still have to think that the sharp people are looking at numbers that just don't really apply anymore mm, okay all right that that definitely makes sense um yeah again th- this is really really one of the tougher matchups of the entire weekend um to try and solve but i, I think you, you know what you boiled it down to with yes the rams defense is a problem for for the seahawks uh uniquely one even you know with them, them being divisional rivals having faced off recently having the rams uh done well against the seahawks defensively both times but a busted golf with no run game to lean on um versus a ru- a non-busted russell wilson that that still has dk metcalf and tyler lockett and a bit of a run game to go with it that should be enough to, to help carry the Seahawks um, to the to the next round, I would imagine as well. Yeah, maybe uh, maybe those guys are still sharp who are betting Rams because it's like maybe they say like, well, yeah, the the Seahawks are going to win, but it's going to be by three, not five. Maybe that's the way that they're thinking. Yeah, that that makes sense, and there has been enough you know re- uh, requisite line movement to maybe suggest that that they are just kind of looking at, at the number more so than than the teams. Uh, that's what smart betters do a lot of the times. Anyhow. Um, let's go Bucks football team, the Saturday nightcap, the, the football team hosting this one is hilarious to me, but Hey, I mean, it, it, them's the rules. They won the division. So, um, that they, they get to host and they get to be eight and a half point dogs at home for, for this game. Uh, the Bucks, you know, I, I've fluctuated on my opinion on them to varying extents i think at times they look like one of the most dangerous teams in football really strong defense and then when the offense is clicking um then you know that things are really going well but you know it feels like that they are clicking at the right time and that there is something to be said for that going into the playoffs i think 
but does clicking against a, a Lions team that did not want to be there the day <laughs> after Christmas and a Falcons team that was actively trying to to lose for its own dra- you know draft interests is that really like is that clicking or is that just kind of taking advantage of the situation I, I don't think you get to click the same way against Chase Young and the in this Washington football team defense yeah I've seen some smart people who I I, I don't consider them any less smart than this uh, for this but I've seen some smart people being like look what Tom Brady has done in the past uh, 12 quarters like this is clearly he's not washed up the Buccaneers were just like improving and now they're really here and oh boy there's oh, no stopping no. them and maybe maybe they're right I don't know maybe maybe Brady looked so bad even in his good games all year because he was just kind of trying to implement a really ambitious offensive vision that just was difficult to pull off and maybe they're just now pulling it off I think they just played the Falcons two times and the Lions with the other yep. time. The, 30, the 32nd ranked defense against the pass, the, the Falcons twice, like you said, and, and the uh, sandwiched in between the Lions 31st. And the thing is, this Washington team is actually one of the first ones I would think of as far as who would be a pain in the ass for the, for the Buccaneers. And probably not in any truly threatening way. It's probably going to be like, you know, a bourbon bowl where the mud dogs lose by three uh, kind of thing uh, like if, if the the Buccaneers probably won't give up anything to the Washington offense if Washington scores a touchdown it has to be the defense scoring it or it has to be the result of kind of like the the Tampa Bay defense goes back onto the field for the the 10th of the last 14 minutes of regulation and Tampa's uh, or, or Washington's starting at the you know the Tampa 38 or something like things like that have to happen for Washington to actually get a points advantage. But as far as eight and a half points spread, I don't really feel comfortable with that because I, th- I even think of like a game like that chargers game where Brady had five touchdowns. Uh, I think about the Detroit game, which just does not count to me. Nope. And it's like, you got him going against the chiefs. He throws two interceptions going against the Rams before that. He throws two interceptions to two touchdowns at four and a half yards per attempt. I think that this defense of Washington's is more like what the, the chiefs and Rams can pose to an offense and it's not quite the same because they're in some ways better in some ways worse than both of those defenses. But the basic issue for Brady here is that, or at least the way I see it is Brady's being carried by this wide receiver personnel. He's being carried by this wide receiver personnel and like his own willingness to kind of just be aggressive all game and, and try to like run up numbers for the appearance or the feeling of dominance. And I still got you try to, if you try to do that against Washington, like, yeah, Mike Evans is amazing. He's a Hall of Fame talent. Chris Godwin may well prove to be that. Obviously, Antonio Brown is one. When you're talking about three Hall of Fame talents and like Rob Gronkowski, uh, an offensive line that has Tristan Wirfs making it much better than it was a year ago, you can go against a good defense and still win. But that isn't what happened with Brady previously this year. So uh, going to Washington, that's that's a that's a thing that makes it needless or uh, that, that that makes it like more complicated than the Buccaneers should feel great about in the first place. Like they, they should be taking this game seriously. Going to Washington makes it even more of a pain in the ass. And those two outside corners are probably going to play pretty well. Mike Evans especially has a big advantage over he's both got, of them. He's got the messed up knee right now, though. It looks like he might be able to play. Like, right. At least he was but practicing. But I just don't think uh, yeah, he's going to be 100 percent, you know? Oh, no, he won't. He might not have been 100 percent many points this year. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, uh, he's playing through a lot. 
But um, yeah, Kendall Fuller, really good corner, but he's like 5'11", 180. That's, there's a reason why the Chiefs had him playing slot corner before Washington traded back for him. Uh, there's uh, the other side, Ronald Darby. He's fast at least, but he's like 5'11", just not a good matchup against Mike Evans. So yeah, Chris Godwin could light up Jimmy Moreland but, uh, in the slot, but Brady has had a little bit of like that Roethlisberger thing this year where he's kind of not throwing to the middle of the field as much as you would expect him to. I, I don't know what the reason for that is. That he was doing some heat checks last week, I feel like, but he's in a more competitive situation, I feel like, less so that, that he would try that. Yeah, so, I mean, he he could have been throwing outside less to Godwin, more to Evans, just because Evans is that good, but that doesn't really add up to me because it's like, well, Godwin's that good too. Godwin is open all the time. He doesn't fail. Why is he only getting seven targets a game? Um, I don't know. Maybe maybe that's a meaningless thing, but you got to hurt the Washington defense in the seam. Uh, trying to just go to Evans over and over outside against Fuller, against Darby, uh, or, or Antonio Brown against either of them, I don't think really has an advantage. I think Antonio Brown matches up very poorly with those two. No, uh, so Cameron Curls looked really good uh, as kind Cameron of like- Curls been really good this year. I don't know why, uh, but he's he's been really good. Mm-hmm. Uh, he plays a lot of slot corner too, or at least he did before Landon uh, Collins got hurt. Um, I don't know. I, I think that, the, and of course, like the Washington pass rush is, is sick. Even yeah, without. I, w- I want to touch on, on that quickly because you know, when in the past has Brady lost in the playoffs? Yeah, it's, it's uh, when he goes against good pass rushes. And, and I know that, you know, the football team's offense is probably just simply not going to be enough for, for it to truly matter in this one. But Brady's bad games in, in the postseason. I mean, it, it's not just the Giants Super Bowls. It's any time that he's getting consistently pressured. And that I mean, that goes for any time in his career. But but in playoffs specifically, you can think of more anecdotes. I, I come back to that Broncos AFC championship game after the 2015 season where he got hit, you know, upwards of 20 times, uh, you know, the the Bucks will obviously test that theory because the Bucks allowed the fourth fewest sacks um, in the league th- this season, just 22. So, I mean, that they're going to be, you know, that they, they aren't going to be snuck up on by this Washington pass rush. Like they know what's coming. They know that that's like the strength. And if you, if you handle that, then the rest of the game should be fairly easy, but handling it uh, much easier said than done. And then, that, uh, so I want to get your thoughts on, on that. Yeah, totally. Cause I mean, this could be one of those moments in hindsight where we kind of remember, we think of it as just like, oh yeah, the Washington defense is is or we don't even think of it in hindsight. It's like we'll just get to next year being like, oh yeah, Washington's got the best pass rush of like the past ten years. Everyone knows that, and it won't. And sometimes it takes like a game like this for everyone to understand it because where everyone's watching at the same time. Because mm-hmm. I, I mean, I said this before this year. Uh, I felt a little risky saying it. Now I don't, and, and now I think it's exactly right. It's like. Montez Sweat and Chase Young isn't just a good combo of defensive ends. It's like that could very well be the next Daniil Hunter and Montez Sweat. And in Chase Young, that could be the next Bruce Smith. And if you have two defensive ends that good on a team, uh, on a defense, the rest of the defense can probably be horrible and still look like something close to good. So like the, so, like the Colts uh, in their glory days with like Mathis and um, Dwight Freeney? I mean, less uh, Tampa 2 stuff going on, but it's it's definitely just, you know, it's like, what, how can you deal with the, the first and second best players at a position in the NFL? Uh, and maybe, like, they could both be all decade guys, you know? Like, it's it's just, and, and the, it's not just that they're some form of very good. It's the insanely 
rare athleticism that they both have. Like yes. Montez Sweat being 6'6", 260, running a 4'4", 140, that's preposterous. <laughs> His wingspan is like uh, as much as like a seven-foot center. Like he's he's that fast and that huge, and you're probably less worried about him than you are Chase Young. <laughs> So it's just like when you start to think about things like that, it's – I mean obviously p- people have played Washington this year. That Seeing this in practice is, is not new as of this game. We've already seen those two defensive ends play on the same team. But as far as Washington being competitive as a team, you're seeing a lot of these narratives that like, well, Alex Smith brought came in and started reducing the turnovers, redu- reducing the sacks, getting steady yardage uh, so they can put up some points. It's like, no, man. It's the – it's those two defensive ends. Like that's why Washington is ever in any game and those corners playing right, well, yeah. but probably only because of those ends being so good. It's like, there's a reason Ronald Darby went from being unwanted as a free agent who the, 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 the Eagles let go as a bust second round pick. And now he's got one of the highest PFF grades this year. It's because of the pass rush and Brady might have a good game even so, uh, but he's not going to be doing these seven step drops or if he is, he's going to get clobbered. Yeah. And, and to your point on the, the, optimist view on on Washington's offense after Alex Smith took over like he he's just like flex flex tape or whatever like you see the commercial like Dwayne Haskins was sawing the boat in half and then I mean Smith can just kind of be the tape that slightly holds it together but he's not like the main thing that that's that's you know actually on the not the vessel no Um, he's bourbon bowl with a fake punt every so often (laughs) yeah very cool fake punts um and then one last thing on this one I guess we, there's not a ton to to say on the Washington offensive side of things, and you know maybe that maybe I'm no. taking a walk down narrative street once again. But um, Brady has not played well in prime time this year, and this one is the late game. Just saying. Yeah, I mean that could that could just be like because that's the best uh, teams that he's facing, right? Like they try, do they try to make those the better? Well, I, guess, teams I mean you know that. the. the you look at the Bears game and you can squint a little bit, but that was, you know, Thursday night, short and weak. But I mean, yeah, I mean, the the, the other primetime games uh, going up against the Saints, going up against the Rams. Um, you know, the- matchup wise, I just think this Washington defense is most similar. Not that they are overall similar, but for Brady and his set of concerns and interests, I think it's the Rams defense that's the most similar one to what he's seen. It's like that that pass rush. This time Aaron Donald, less the edge, uh, more so Aaron Donald. But the the basic reality of like you got one corner who's a problem on your best guy. You got this. You got Darius Williams who's a problem on your other guy. Uh, you can win both cases, but look at this. You didn't. And uh, so like that's that's what I think. Like Kendall Fuller. Ronald Darby plus those two ends is is the closest thing on this schedule for for Brady other than the the Ramsey Darius Williams Aaron Donald kind of triangle mm-hmm. and and Brady of course did not do well against the Rams just twenty six of forty eight with two picks and two hundred sixteen yards also through the two um, touchdowns but a, a four point five yards per, uh, per attempt average in that one so um, I, I guess rounding it out I like the football team minus or plus eight in especially if if you can get it at eight and a half but um i i still like the the bucks to win this one just because the offense on on washington so bad but this one yeah it's not going to be a laugher i think there's another game on on the board here that that's more likely to to live up to its big spread the the bears saints game that than this one yeah uh i think the bears I mean, like it's good to see montgomery do well 
he's he's more or less as good as his numbers are lately. It's just that you got to put it for the whole season to get the picture. It's like he's not as good as he's been lately. He wasn't as bad as he was earlier in the year. He whatever he is is not good enough to carry the offense against especially a defense like this in a setting like this. And Allen Robinson is is you know the the guy who can maybe carry Chicago like he's he's an actual star player so if someone can galvanize this offense and take it to some level higher than its nature it would be him but he's dependent on Mitch Trubisky who is going to probably do a very bad job so maybe Allen Robinson gets open maybe he makes uh, miraculous catches while being covered I just can't imagine a scenario where he can be put in a position to do as much as he maybe could and certainly not enough to to be whatever's enough to win uh i guess the spread's a little bit gaudy like 10 points that's a lot i don't really know what to make of that but i see nothing positive with the bears so i, I don't really want to argue against it either here before before we dive into that further we uh we got a message from our friends over at bet mgm that we then we will get back to breaking down that that saints uh bears matchup for sunday um, but again, a message from our friends over at BetMGM. Sports bettors know that magic happens when you turn a hunch into action and apply the right amount of expertise. That's why BetMGM has teamed up with RotoWire to offer new BetMGM customers a free six month RotoWire subscription when they place their first bet. Register on the BetMGM app or website and use promo code ROTO, that's R O T O, to claim your free subscription. Once you make your first sports wager, you'll receive a season's length of RotoWire unmatched sports insights find out why betmgm is the king of sports books by signing up and placing your first bet today visit betmgm.com for terms and conditions you must be 21 years of age or older to wager colorado indiana new jersey nevada tennessee and west virginia only please gamble responsibly if you have a gambling problem please call 1-800-522-4700 in colorado and nevada and 1-800-GAMBLER in new jersey and West Virginia. If you're in Tennessee, call or text the red line. That's 800-889-9789. Or if you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help in Indiana, it is 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana and promotional offer not available in Nevada. So we, we started briefly unpacking that this uh, Bears-Saints game. Let, let's let's just go ahead and, and press forward with it. You, you aired your concerns, obviously, with, with how this Bears offense sets up against the Saints. I mean, the, these two teams played a close game earlier this season. It was a nasty day in Chicago. Um, it was outdoors. Um, this was just a, you know, it was, it was a game that like the bit, that's what the bears wanted to do, at least in their current form, like, you know, that just ugly that game up against the saints, give themselves a chance. Um, I don't think that they'll be able to execute that same sort of strategy here. So they're going to have to keep up. And I just don't think that they really have the the horses to do it necessarily, especially, I mean, with, with Mitchell Trubisky and that offensive line specifically. Yeah, so the the Saints defense is probably going to do a lot of the work here, uh, especially if this is a game where the Saints cover that 10 points. The the defense can really make bad Mitch happen. And they might not need that much help to win. Like the the Saints offense might kind of just do its usual business here <clears throat> at home against the Bears defense that has struggled to stop the run a lot this year. So as much as we have reason, I think, to, to suspect Kamara does quite a bit. 
they might not need him to do a lot either. Like Latavius Murray might be able to run on this defense and, uh, you know, might, I don't think they're going to give him a shot again. But I do still believe Ty Montgomery is good. And I, I absolutely feel uh, like last week was was further proof that he never was that bad. He just got hurt in Green Bay. And Mike McCarthy was like, uh, we're going to go with Jamal Williams forever now because I just think he's really good. Uh, Ty Montgomery is good with a football. He just got hurt. So if and they he, give he him did the, the ball, he did the no, no against the Rams. And that that was the last straw. <laughs> Yeah, so he he if they got to give him the ball, I think he'll be enough. If if they give it to Kamara, yeah, sure, doesn't really matter to me. I just, it's like I see the running game going for the Saints, and maybe I should be concerned about their passing, but I'm just not really. Like I I, I just uh, I don't know. I just don't think that is as much as Jalen Johnson and Kyle Fuller are good corners, and as much as the scheme kind of limits their responsibilities a little bit. Just I just don't think Breeze is going to have a bad game. And I feel like he needs to have a, not just like an off game. He needs to have a truly bad game for the bears to have a shot. So I, I know that th- these are mostly different conditions that, that, that we're speaking on here. But if you look back to the Vikings saints game from the opening round a year ago, is there anything that any details from that, that, you know, maybe plays to the bears favor going into new Orleans, or do you think that new Orleans, you know, obviously has looked back and, and, plugged up whatever holes there there were that um you know allowed the vikings to go in there and, and get the win well it kind of seemed if i remember right on that one and i i don't know as much about the x's and o's as some other people it's like i, I kind of skip some of the granular details but if i remember right the vikings kind of just caught sean payton off guard with their game plan like mike zimmer uh he, he's evolved a little bit over the years but generally Mike Zimmer's deal is he believes in playing just four, three defense man up uh, pressure at the line of scrimmage, press man coverage. And he believes in blitzing a lot. Uh, he, he, he you'll hear people say like Zimmer, Zimmer's big on the pass rush or whatever. Like that all started because he just, uh, he blitzed a lot as the defensive coordinator in Dallas and in Cincinnati. It's like, he started calling a bunch of suicide blitzes, uh, he called something more like the opposite of all that against the the Saints last year, if if I remember right. They went into, I think, what was basically like cover two, which I don't understand why it was such a problem all game. But the, the Vikings basically played more zone coverages than they had previously. And sitting on these spots where Michael Thomas was getting a lot of his targets and kept ending up in these situations where he goes to his look and he starts to wind up to throw it. And it's like, Oh, there's a robber there. And he, he hold, he holds onto the ball, maybe looks around a little bit more, maybe takes a sack, but like they weren't putting up points. So the, the bears, I mean, if they try to run something like that again, uh, a, it's like, I don't know if that same result happens. If Peyton just plans for it ahead of time, not that I know why he would have had such a problem adjusting in game to, to what might've been basic zone coverages, but, hmm. uh, the, the Vikings apparently just didn't play him the way they, that he expected it to. And for whatever reason, couldn't fix it before the game was over before the game had been decided anyway. Uh, so that's, that's a lot of like, and that's a lot of like, uh, anomalous details that, that I just don't know if I don't know if it's like the, the the Bears can recreate enough of those conditions to to make the same scenario possible, and I don't know that the Saints de- the Saints offense is particularly similar to what they're like. They have no Michael Thomas, uh, or the, he he's not he's not Michael right? Tom he's not what Michael Thomas <laughs> okay. was. So, I yeah, think he's um, activated though. 
Oh, he is active? Okay. Well, either way, obviously, if, if Michael Thomas is back, that is not a bad thing for the Saints. Uh, but in any case, I think this is one of those deals, like, if the Bears try to do the same thing that Zimmer did in that game, Peyton will basically be like, oh, that's okay, I'm ready for it this time. Uh, I don't I don't think he's going to be surprised by Chuck Pagano. Not that I would have predicted him being surprised by Mike Zimmer. I never actually thought Zimmer was that much of a tactician I thought he was just kind of a guy who blitzes aggressively and has good corners and good uh, players at his disposal. Uh, but the Bears don't really, aside from Akeem Hicks and Roquan Smith, those corners are good. Eddie Jackson is good, but uh, they don't have enough for stopping the run this year anyway. And I, I just don't think – like I'm also kind of deferring to just Breeze at home and, and what Breeze has been all year. Uh, it's like if if he just kind of loosely follows his baseline, it it still seems to me like it would be a steady point accumulation for for the Saints. Whereas whatever I imagine on the Bear side, it's like at best they get a couple big plays here or there from like a busted coverage. But I don't know, like busted coverage against Trubisky just doesn't mean as much. <laughs> no, it it doesn't. I mean, it, yeah, he's he's had a lot of success against bad defenses down the stretch here that that might have overinflated what you know what he really is. Um, you know, maybe it was outsized as to, uh, the bashing, uh, earlier on this season or whatever, but, um, he's certainly not, not as good as he's played, um, down the stretch. And I, I think that that things will ultimately probably fall apart, um, in new Orleans for, for him. Um, I, that's a huge number, especially if, if points bet has it at, at 10 and a half, uh, FanDuel's got it at, at a nine and a half as far as, um, what the bears would, uh, or what the saints would have to cover. I don't like laying that many points against a team with, with at least a, a Khalil Mack and a, and a solid defense as the Bears. But oh, him! I forgot about him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that whole thing. Um, but um, so I, I'm really on the fence as far as the spread goes. But I I feel very confident that that you know the Saints won't be caught off guard that this year. But by, by you know it. Give me that nine and a half. Yeah, okay, it's playoff Mitch. Playoff Mitch. Okay. All right. That that's good enough. I needed someone to to talk a little bit of sense to me um there. So all right, that's good. Um we got a couple games left. Let's hit Ravens, Titans, Ravens three point favorites on the road in, in this one. Uh these teams have an interesting playoff history where I don't think any time that they've squared off in the postseason the home team has won. Okay, that is interesting. Like it dates yeah, back I mean, to 2000. Uh, the Ravens went to what was then Adelphi Stadium, won the divisional round game. That was crazy. Um, and then 2003, I want to say, Steve McNair went into Baltimore, upset a sixth-grade aged uh, John McKechnie. Very mad about that one. <laughs> um, there, I think there was another uh, postseason win for the Titans uh, a little bit later on. And then um of course the titans went into baltimore last year and won and then flacco's rookie year they went to tennessee um and, and beat uh the Kerry collins led tennessee titans way way back when in 2008 um so yeah there, oh, nice. a, lot, a lot of weird interesting history that really i'm probably the only person that finds it interesting but oh <laughs> well it's uh it's it's all worth considering i guess we have uh more of a history between these teams than i would have guessed at a glance but as far as um as far as looking at the spread and everything, I'm kind of surprised that Baltimore's favored by effectively six and a half points. I would have guessed they would have been maybe like one and a half points on this road mm-hmm. setting. Three and a half is more than I would have guessed. The betting volume doesn't seem to be shaking it in any direction. Uh, it's like 52% of the volume is on Tennessee. So the spread is staying the same. I 
I feel like this is almost a little bit like uh, maybe a little bit kind of like what I was talking about with the Bills Seattle thing, or sorry, the Bills uh, the Bills Indianapolis yeah. thing, where it's like if if uh, if Josh Allen is on, then a certain range of possibilities is just right there removed. It's like if if you get high enough ahead of either of these offenses, but especially Tennessee, in my opinion then it can kind of tip a threshold where the game stops being competitive and like the results are basically not meaningless anymore because it's not a competitive game, but it, it like gets out of hand in some way or another. I, I, or this is going to be like a game where they're very uh, just going punch for punch. But then if it's that, it's like, how do you, how do you see the edge for either team? I don't know on what basis uh, things like that are, are resolved when people are making, making these, you know, bookkeeping uh, considerations. So I don't, I guess we can assume there is some basic mathematical basis for thinking the Ravens really are the team to be feared of, of the two. And I, I'm kind of of that initial reaction, but it's like also I'm used to having an initial reaction and then looking at the spread or whatever and being confused by it because I'm just, you know, my initial assumption is usually wrong. And it's like you got to look at stuff a little bit to figure it out for sure. And when I look at the the granular details of this game, it's like I just I just see offenses that are largely analogous to each other. Uh, not as much pass catching options though with the Ravens, which no. could matter because yes. as last year showed, if you get ahead of them and you reduce their offense to like just Lamar Jackson trying to, they run. they had they had to try to do a comeback with Seth Roberts. Yeah, Seth Roberts getting a lot of snaps. It's like that stuff. That, the Ravens have been asking for problems like this, yeah, going back to last year with Seth Roberts and then this year with Miles Boykin and you know Willie Sneed's been fine or whatever, but you can do better. Try to do better. Yes, they don't try to do better. They give a lot of snaps to guys that you can't get any production from. Like you, you got to get productive snaps on the field, and those are productive snaps when they are run reps because Lamar Jackson has the ball or J.K. Dobbins or Gus Edwards has the ball, and maybe even. Miles Boykin and Willie Sneed are good blockers. I don't care if they are, but maybe that's something they do, and maybe therefore they can have some theoretical productive contribution if the ball is on the ground. But if they're if they're running the ball, they have the lead already, you know, or like they're not losing. So if the if the if the Titans getting a point advantage on them means that those reps that go to Snead and Boykin start becoming negatives, start being leaks in the boat, then you would expect last year's results to be specifically what happens. Yeah. And I'm definitely worried about the same thing because as much as Marquise Brown had a big game against them last year and as much as I think still that Marquise Brown is good, I am more, I am more sure than I was last year that Boykin isn't good enough and that Snead isn't good enough. And sure, Lamar can just kind of transcend. He's, he is that level of talent. But he already has to do that like 10 times in the regular season. And I know like people like say, well, well, it's put up or shut up time in the playoffs. Like actually it's just like sometimes it just turns out that one guy needed some help and there wasn't any coming. And, I mean la- and last year it wasn't a failing of Lamar Jackson. It was no. the, the entire team went into a shell the second they got punched in the mouth. They didn't face any adversity from September when they when they lost to the Browns at home. They got smoked by the Browns at home. They won whatever it was, 12 games the re- uh, in a row the rest of the way without like any resistance. So the second that someone bows up to them, they just immediately went into a shell. This year, I think this team has faced a lot more adversity. I think they're a lot more battle-tested, not just based off of last year, but I think that Browns game was a signature example of 
this Ravens team being a little bit different, being able to take some punches and then come back and deliver their their own. Whereas in other spots previously under the, this current regime, they they fall behind and and it's just it's over. And they you know even yeah. by a touchdown, it, it's things get really hairy. Yeah, and I think Ryan Tannehill basically isn't a good quarterback, but. This scenario looks like it could be the same as last year for him, like where he just doesn't really have to do that much. And as much as I don't think he's good, I think he's good enough to make, you know, to to, to take a burden of 25 low pressure play action heavy reps where he's throwing the ball 35 percent plus of the time to a player like A.J. Brown and the rest of the time it's Corey Davis It's like that is stuff that I think can work just fine for the Titans, even though I don't think Tannehill is any good. So for me to think bad Tannehill comes out means that I think the Ravens quite simply got a point advantage first. Like, cause it's it, like, maybe they don't fall apart if, if the, if the Titans go up by one touchdown, maybe they can keep their wits about them. But last year they didn't. And I, I don't know, maybe, maybe Lamar bears some of the responsibility of that. I, I think that's, he probably did being a 22 year old, uh, quarterback and I think basically we saw like you know your team got here because you had a quarterback who threw 36 touchdowns in 390 attempts and it turns out on the basis of the results of this game you didn't have any plan b if something other than that happened and, and they had Mark, Mark Ingram who was such a vital part of that offense in 2019 basically playing on on one leg slash basically not being able to play at all because of that calf injury he suffered and they didn't have I mean it, they you know, quote unquote, like a deep stable of running backs, but like Gus Edwards wasn't able to pick up the slack that that was left behind by Mark Ingram. Like J.K. Dobbins now is healthy and and good to go, so like they they're not going to have to figure out on the fly what what they can do with the run game without their best uh, like rushing option. That's not Lamar Jackson. Yeah, and maybe it is Dobbins that's the key here because I like I, I definitely believe in Dobbins. I've I've been a I think he was my second running back behind Taylor in like my, my personal rankings after the draft, I put Taylor first and Clyde Hilaire second and Deandre Swift also ahead of Dobbins. but that didn't have anything to do with the player talents. Like I think Dobbins was the second best running back of the class behind Taylor, who I thought was clearly the best. Uh, Dobbins is definitely better than Cam Akers. I know some people who don't understand how any of these football things work, still (laughs) think something different than that, but it's okay. You will learn too folks. And this, I guess would be a good game for them to start to understand why they're wrong and how, but the one thing is that the Ravens, I don't trust to play this quite the right way. Uh, Maybe Dobbins and Edwards being out there and, and full strength is enough uh, for to kind of just keep the Tennessee defense on its heels. But I worry that they won't give Dobbins like the start and the, the early snaps. Like I think Gus Edwards has a role in this offense, but he's the guy who should play more when you have the points already. You want Dobbins on the field because even if you don't throw to him, the defense still knows, oh, that guy they throw to. When Edwards is on the field, they say, like, oh, they're not throwing to him, so what else is going on here? Mm-hmm. You want them to have to think everybody on the field is a threat. They, they need to spend bandwidth on scenarios that are probably not going to happen, but you want them to have to think about it a little so they spend a little less time thinking about what you're actually going to do. And I think that if Dobbins is out there early, it's going to make Lamar a little bit better. It's going to make the receivers, the Mark Andrews, a little bit better because the defense won't be looking so specifically at them. If it's Edwards out there, like they'll probably be fine. Gus is automatic as a runner. There's no doubt about that. But you're more likely to end up in like the third and eight with Gus Edwards on the field than with J.K. Dobbins. And you can't afford those scenarios in this game when you have the offense 
built like the Ravens do, you need to have that scenario only occur when you already have the lead. So I hope they go with Dobbins until they have points and then go with go with Gus the rest of the game. He could probably tie it up for you at that point. But you don't want to end up in that third and long where if you don't get the first down, you're going to be down points to the Titans because right. that's just that's just the same scenario as last year. Right. And, and both these teams have the um, you know, that that ability where if or the ur- the kind of subtle urgency almost where it's like if you are unable to have a scoring drive it's bad news because the other team can is very much capable of doing like a soul cleaving 12 play yeah eight minute you know however name the yardage drive that ends in a, in a touchdown that, that breaks your defense's back so like that every drive is so important in this one and both defenses can be gotten as well yeah, uh, I will say I, part of why I'm worried about the Ravens and people who are assuming the Ravens are good or, or fine in the setting. I think some of that might be like, oh, well, the Tennessee defense is so bad. And it generally is. And against crucially against the run, they probably won't be good. Uh, but as far as assuming they'll just be bad against the pass, that it, maybe it's more likely to be true than not true. But it's not as likely to be true as it was a month ago before they traded for Desmond King and before Adoree Jackson came back from injury that kept him out for like the first 12 weeks or whatever. Adoree Jackson is a huge upgrade over Jonathan Joseph and Breon Borders, who they've had playing at left corner all year. And Desmond King is a huge upgrade in the slot over like the the, the Marshall seventh round pick, who I can't remember, mm-hmm. who was getting lit up all year. Like those two are good corners, and they had two of the worst corners in the league giving them reps at those two spots uh, before about a month ago. So Tennessee's pass defense is probably going to get a little better. Uh, although we, last thing I'll say about the Titans, uh, we got to watch to see what happens with uh, Roger Saffold and Dennis Kelly, who have been hurt, and if if either of them is out, especially Saffold, that would be a pretty big deal. Okay, and then what? Uh one last one last thing um i feel like we've done an incredible job of breaking this game down without really even mentioning derrick henry um and and aj brown even even um Corey davis but what what are your expectations for for those three specifically um in this setup uh i don't think like i think henry will be fine uh, i think they're going to have you have to sell out against the run basically yes against the time, you, or you have to score points fast enough that they have to stop giving him the ball every play. Uh, but you got to sell out a little bit against him. I, I don't know what I think about that exactly. Like the, the Baltimore defense has been in a flux in a lot of ways. I feel like this year between it's kind of like new rookie personnel at linebacker and then like injuries on the, on the defensive line to Derek Wolf and Calais Campbell and even Brandon Williams, I guess. Yes. Uh, it's hard for me to know what they're supposed to be. So I don't know what. Like, I don't even know if they're a good run defense or something less than that. I don't really know. But Marlon Humphrey is probably going to shadow A.J. Brown, and I don't really see that as a negative for A.J. Brown. If anything, I feel like that's kind of a trap for a defense to to develop the hubris to believe that you can get away with putting one guy on A.J. Brown without help uh, because he's – well, Marlon's so good. We don't even need to give him help. I think you should put Marlon on A.J. Brown and then give him help too. Yeah, uh, I don't know if they're going to do that, but that's how they should do it. Because if you if you just say like, oh, we'll we'll give our help against uh, Corey Davis and we'll we'll leave Marlon alone because he's fine. It's like that's that's not fair. No one can cover AJ Brown forever. I mean, they, like, they should they know better than anybody. I mean, they, back in November, right, the week before Thanksgiving, when Tennessee went into Baltimore and beat them, like AJ Brown might not have done a ton for most of that game. But when it came down to, I think it was the the game winning drive. Like, 
AJ Brown caught the ball and could could not be tackled, or it yeah, wasn't the just, game. It was the some, one in the fourth quarter. Yeah, yeah, he's just too like Humphrey can cover him perfectly, and it still might not matter on that play. Uh, the only way that AJ Brown, uh, like AJ Brown, won't really fail. That's to me out of the question. He doesn't fail, but Tannehill can, and it's the context from which they're throwing. I think that determines whether you'll get scared, spooked Tannehill who chokes. Or Tannehill, who feels safe and comfortable because he knows it's not actually about him and he, he doesn't have that fear of failure uh, giving him the yips. But if if the Titans are throwing the ball to A.J. Brown while they have a three or four point lead, I can imagine A.J. Brown getting some viable targets. Tannehill, if he's coming off the play action and if he's not feeling the pressure, that's where he's more likely to look himself. But if, if they're losing and they need Tannehill to make good throws to A.J. Brown, I can imagine A.J. Brown getting worse efficiency in that scenario just because Tannehill's a choker. He always was one. He always will be one. Okay. All right. So that a lot of scenarios at play in this game. I think there, there's a lot of ways that this one can go. Um, there's obviously a lot of bad blood between these two teams. I'm really, really excited for this one. I think that's going to be a really fun way to kick off uh, the Sunday action. Um, let's move on over to the what what will finish up our weekend is the Browns going to Pittsburgh to face the Steelers. We know earlier in the season that the Steelers just completely smoked the Browns um, when they were at full strength. And then a week ago, the Browns did not smoke the Steelers in Cleveland. They, they kind of needed some, you know, late game closing it out. It was closer than, than probably the Browns fans would, would have been comfortable with, especially with, with no Ben Roethlisberger out there for the Steelers and just Mason Rudolph. But uh, point being, or, you know, that besides the point, this is a new new season, new ball game. We got the Steelers six-point favorites. That line has ballooned. It opened up at minus four for the Steelers, but the Browns are having some COVID issues and they're not going to have their head coach there um there you know there, there are a couple other key pieces that that could be absent on on cleveland's side for this one and they got you know uh jack conklin wyatt teller jc treader all those guys are on the injury report that's not great yeah i mean it's insane that we're in this particular place but i was kind of relieved to see those guys on the injury report as a limited practice participants because it at least uh, confirms to me that they're not on the COVID list. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know what the hell is going on with that, by the way. Are there, are there any big name players or is it just Stefanski and those coaches? Um, as far as as I know, it, it's just Stefanski and those coaches. Okay, because, yeah, if, if the offensive line is there, then, like, that's the Browns' offense. I don't think Ke- – Kevin Stefanski may have done some job other than bad this year, but he doesn't matter. They're not going to lose or win because he's there or not. Uh, yeah. Their offense is that complex. They don't need an expert to run it. He wouldn't be an expert if they did need one to run it. So I think that they're going to be – their general brown selves the question is what does that mean and like what what are the Steelers going to be and i don't feel like there's an easy answer like i feel like, i feel like the answer is somewhat easy for the browns it's like you're always going to approach their offense the same way you're going to sell out to try to stop chubb you might make it work for three quarters the question of whether it works for the fourth quarter depends on whether the game is close enough for the browns to keep giving chubb the ball in the fourth quarter and if it's close enough for them to keep giving him the ball in the fourth quarter you have a problem then but if he doesn't get the ball in the fourth quarter, then it's probably because you already won in the third and they've put the game on Baker Mayfield's shoulders and now they can't. the Browns can't win if that happens. They can't win if that happens at any point in this game. They need Chubb, the running game. They need field positioning to win it. 
And that all counterintuitively gets more likely for me because of Ben Roethlisberger playing in this game. I literally believe that in his current form, Ben Roethlisberger is worse than Mason Rudolph. And I think Mason Rudolph is pretty bad. Yes. It's not, that's not something I take lightly, lightly when I say it. But is it a coincidence? It, it might be a coincidence, and it, it might not be so much a coincidence as explained by the fact that Denzel Ward didn't play. But you'll notice the target volumes for those three receivers, Chase Claypool, Juju Smith-Schuster, and Deontay Johnson, completely inverted from what it was all year. And yes, that could be a one-off thing. But guess what? It happened zero times in any of the games with Ben Roethlisberger played, all 15 of them. So maybe it was a one-game uh, fluke, but why didn't that one game happen in any of the previous 15 if it is a fluke? I don't know. It's like Maybe it is. It doesn't seem quite to... It's, it feels like there's something there to me. And Mason Rudolph is a guy who... Uh, not that he's good at it, but he's willing to throw downfield. And I think that's why you saw that target distribution. It's like Claypool's further downfield. Juju Smith-Schuster's not further downfield, but he's in the middle of the field where it's a riskier throw. There's there's more guys sitting around than on the farthest edge of the defense where Deontay Johnson always was. Like Ben Roethlisberger would throw it to Deontay Johnson on those plays not because he was open, not because it was going to work. Obviously, it wasn't really working. The reason he did it, though, was because he could. He kept getting to this crucial point in the development of these plays where he's looking, and he knows, I have to make a decision now. When I look at Claypool, I'm not quite sure what I see. I might be able to get the ball there. I might not. I'm not sure. Or maybe he looks there, and he's like, no, I can't get it there. He looks at Juju. He's like, I don't know what's going to happen here. I need to start my windup now, and I, I don't know which way this one's going to go. Deontay's over here, and no one's by him for five yards. I'm going to see if he can just catch this and do something with it. That's what the Pittsburgh offense was with Roethlisberger all year, him getting to that point in the play, bailing on it in the form of checking down to Deontay Johnson. It's not Deontay Johnson just dominating the defense with four-yard curls so much that Ben Roethlisberger had to throw it to him. That is so imbecilic, and it is such a common sentiment that you find in a lot of sharp fantasy football analysis. It's comedy. Save it for later. It's going to age terribly. It's going to be great stuff. And uh, in that game, though, Mason Rudolph was all it took for Claypool to get cooking downfield, for Juju Smith-Schuster to get 10 targets, productive targets. And giving Deontay Johnson credit, you'd you'd think that I just think he's the worst receiver based on the way I talk to him. That's, <laughs> yeah. that's a corrective measure. There's a lot of fools who are who are hyping him way too much. Sure. And it's it's a corrective thing. I think Deontay Johnson's good. And I think that game showed you that the whole issue for him all year is that he was getting overused. He was a crutch that was bearing too much weight. You lower his target volume to four, and guess what? You get three explosive catches from him. The only three explosive catches that he's probably had all year. And it's all in the context of lowering his target volume. That's all it took to make him efficient. People who were saying, like, he's getting all the targets. Ben Roethlisberger's holding him back. It's like He's kind of holding him back, but he's also the only reason he's getting those targets in the first place. And if you were giving those targets on the basis of merit, you would – get a lot of them shifted from Deontay to those other two. And in the process, you would make Deontay Johnson better because the defense wouldn't sit on him as much. He would have more room because the defense would have to shift itself more toward Claypool and, D- and Juju Smith-Schuster. Yeah, it's so, funny, um, like, t- backing up your point, the, the only other game this year in which he had more than uh, one 20-yard reception was against the Jaguars. He had 16 targets in that game. Uh, still only averaged 9.3 yards per reception despite having three catches of, of over 20 yards, whereas last week the four targets go for 96 yards on three catches, a 32-yard catch average. So obviously not going to average that over the course of the season, but it, it jives with your point that um, it was just even in even on like his bigger games this season, it was also like due in part to just like overusage. 
Yeah, so I guess what I could say in any case is, yeah, maybe Stefanski not being there for the Browns hurts them. Let's just assume it does. I still think that Roethlisberger replacing Rudolph is worse for the Steelers than Stefanski missing is for the Browns. That doesn't make me want to say the Steelers are going to lose exactly, but I do feel like Pittsburgh by six is too much. Okay. Uh, yeah, that's, yeah. the The new line definitely uh, makes it a little bit tougher. You, definitely a lot more palatable um at, at four especially for for a home team Steelers uh Baker Mayfield's first playoff game Baker Mayfield hasn't played great in big spots He's still bad yeah the, the, the analytics that just by complete coincidence seems to be penalizing uh, or sorry it seems to be rewarding the quarterbacks who do the least share of their offense uh, like Ryan Tannehill and Baker Mayfield are showing up the highest in the EPA and the CPOE or whatever that is. It's like that's a that's a weird coincidence. The people who have a professional uh, industri- industrial interest in devaluing the work of running backs are specifically trying to award credit to quarterbacks who do the least work in their offenses. That's a coincidence, isn't it? Uh, anyway, Baker sucks. If they need no him to throw jobs. the ball, he's going to completely fall apart. Yeah, and, the, and the, that could definitely happen, especially if that Browns offensive line is banged up and then it that really stunk last week for the browns when, when olivier vernon went down as well so i mean that that's one that less guy loss. To, to um to get after the passer with yeah that is a loss he's a good player so uh, again I, i'm with you there Steeler Steelers, i like them to win I, I think that even with the line being at six i would probably more so lean towards them than, than the browns i think the browns are going to be really really dangerous as soon as next year but um in its current form, and I think the Steelers are, are due for some, you know, uh, regression. But I, I think that it that those things will both come to fruition next year. I think, as far as this weekend is yeah. concerned, the Steelers are, are still the better team. Browns are still like an eight and eight team. They should not have their eleven and five record. Yeah, uh, yeah. The the AFC is really inflated by having the Jets and the and the Jaguars in it. God uh, bless as far them. as those, those win totals were concerned, um, that's going to round it out for our playoff preview. Mario, it's it's draft season time. Like any time that that we get past the the postseason games, any time that we get into the new year or the the college football playoff games, I mean, uh, it's officially time to start taking a look at the upcoming draft class. You went ahead and did that. Turned out a tome of an article um all of it great stuff go ahead and check it out on the rotowire websites under the featured section uh on the main page and also of course on the nfl page as well but um i want to just kind of kick off our draft discussion today um looking at the at your top five wide receivers for for this upcoming class obviously not everyone has officially declared yet we got a couple guys in here that will be playing in monday night's uh, college football championship game between alabama and ohio state of course we got some lsu guys though that are already declared ready to rock um, one of which uh, who will lead off our discussion didn't even play in 2020 in the 2020 regular season for lsu but even with that his sophomore season in 2019, Blitnikoff award-winning season, good enough to keep him as your wide receiver one going into this uh, year. That, of course, being Jamar Chase. Tell the people the good word on Jamar Chase. Yeah, I don't know exactly what he is. He's not. Uh, there's not like a obvious prior comparison that you can say that you know he's the next To or he's the next. Uh, AJ Brown. There's nothing like that. He doesn't 
have a huge frame at six foot two oh eight. That's a well like Terry McLaurin or something. I was going to say my comparison that I'm leaning toward is actually Terry McLaurin, but it's it's like Terry McLaurin a little slower but a little bit heavier too, which I don't think that's uh, a positive or a negative. I think that just kind of is one of those things like you'll use these kinds of routes with him instead of these kind. You're going to, you're going to use something maybe like 11 and a half average depth of target instead of 13, like a trivial thing like that. Um, I think Jamar Chase can basically function as a wide receiver one in any conceivable offensive arrangement. And you just, uh, he's the kind of guy you, you build it on. Like you, you get him, his production maximized and specifically because he's the kind of guy who can do it with the the defense focusing on him. And when you have a guy like him, it kind of frees the other complementary pieces to face a little less defensive attention. And still all the while he can be the kind of guy who wins even while facing the most attention. And the reason that I feel that way is because simply he was better not, I shouldn't say like better as like a, a value determination. He was more productive than Justin Jefferson was in that LSU offense, the best college football offense of all time, and Jamar Chase was about, I think it was like nine 19? months, at, at least six months younger. Uh, yeah, he was he was nineteen at the time, and he was <laughs> he was like he was like nine or six months younger than Justin Jefferson, who was also very young for his for his level of production. But they played slightly different positions. Like Jamar Chase was outside; he was the downfield guy, uh, or one of the downfield guys, I should say. Like Terrace Marshall, who's also in this list, was the other one. Um, but he was playing outside. Justin Jefferson was in the slot. Jefferson was great. Chase was still better. Uh, according to Bruce Feldman, at six foot two oh eight, we can expect Chase to run something like a four four flat. I think as long as he runs something better than a four four six, then you're locking him into the top fifteen picks and certainly top overall receiver. Um, because in that LSU offense, they completed Joe Burrow completed more or less seventy five percent of his pass attempts at ten point six yards per attempt. Chase's catch percentage was slightly at a deficit. It was exactly two-thirds of his catches, which is uh, like 8.4 points of catch percentage. But I think that was easily overruled by having a surplus of uh, 3.5 yards per attempt uh, per target, I should say. So he's doing 3.5 yards more per target than the overall LSU offense was. And that's that overall baseline of the LFCU offense is being set by guys like Justin Jefferson, you know. So he's he's outplaying that line of yardage per target, even while scoring I'm trying to 20 the, touchdowns. He's yeah, 20, 20 touchdowns, touchdowns in 14 games. Yeah, 20, 20 touchdowns on that many receptions. I can't read my own stupid numbers here, but uh, he he had that many yards per target and that many touchdowns. So you have to add a little bit more yards to the per target figure yet. You have to imagine, well, what happens if there isn't an end zone to stop <laughs> yeah. his yardage count on Seriously. those touchdowns? He could be pushing like 16 yards a target or something. If, if he, if you lowered his touchdown count to something still high, like 12, he might've been doing like 16 yards a target. So it's, it's basically like never before seen explosiveness. Yeah, like one Jamar out of his, one out of every four catches went for a touchdown. Basically. Yeah, so it it would be one thing if he had been, uh, you know, a year and a half older than Jefferson and Terrace Marshall, if he had been uh, unproductive his years before that. But that's not the case. He was productive as a rotational player at 18 as a true freshman, went absolutely insane the sophomore year two years ago where he was better than Jefferson, a junior like that's that's just enough, especially after seeing how good Jefferson has been in the NFL. It's like on an objective level, Chase is not likely to be as good as Justin Jefferson with Jefferson having more or less proven how good he is at the NFL level. But as prospects, 
in terms of prospect grade, prior to putting in that hindsight with Jefferson, it's not even close. Chase is clearly better. Like you could still grade Jefferson as a clear first round pick. Chase is just a top ten pick, if so. Yeah, Chase is nuts. I mean, you know, kind of. Kind of I went back. I knew that we were going to be doing this today, um, so I, I looked at a little bit more uh, tape on, on these guys. And I mean, Chase, you know, like he, he's like fast and quick enough to to separate off the line. Like his ability to get off of coverage is is good, but he's also big and strong and and like instinctive enough to where if he doesn't have a ton of separation, he like his his GPS for finding the ball is incredible. Like his tracking skills are preposterous. Um, so even when there's not, or even when he's being blanketed, he, he positions himself in a way where he still is the one that comes down with the ball. And then, you know, he's got, like you said, probably not like the, some of the wheels that we're going to, we're going to see on the guys that we're about to talk about, but definitely fast enough and, and, you know, has enough vision to, uh, to take it to the house, even when he or once he gets the ball in his hand. So I mean, there, I like your McLaurin call. Thank I think you. The McLaurin call is right. Okay. Yeah. I think yeah. Supercharged Terry McLaurin. That that's a good thing to be. It, not the four three four three five speed or whatever it was, but um, just a little bit more oomph to his game. Um, so yeah, love Jamar Chase. That's it's going to be really difficult um, for me to think of anybody else unless he tanks the combine, which we don't expect, especially since he's been fresh. He's been prepping for the draft, prepping for the Feldman combine. has usually pretty good. It's not perfect, but he totally nailed Jonathan Taylor's 40 time, for instance. There's cases of him being a little bit off, but Feldman said four, four flat. Okay. All right. That, that If he does that, then, you know, that they're that that finishes it. Basically, he's got to yeah. be wide receiver one. Um, this next guy, um, you know, if you're the call, if you're a casual and I'm not, I don't mean this in like a, I'm talking down to to anybody way. But if you're the casual college football observer who mostly pays attention to the NFL, you would you might be surprised to see you having a ranking of Jalen Waddle, wide receiver two, and Devontae Smith, the the newly crowned Heisman Trophy winner, wide receiver three. But there are other things at play than just Devontae Smith's incredible um, senior season here at Alabama. Right. Part of what allowed Devontae Smith to have this particular season that he did was Jalen Waddle's injury. And not that I'm saying that he's like – that. I'm not saying Smith is a product of some system or whatever. I am actually – uh, especially if in this past week, I've seen some arguments from people who are critics of Devonte Smith, and, and I'll do this where where I just like won't even really think about something until I see other people making arguments about it. It, it saves me time. It saves me mental bandwidth to let other people think about something first. And then I just kind of like look at what their proposals are and I, I look at it. And if it makes sense to me, I'm like, Oh, Hey, maybe this person's onto something and I am getting none of that so far. I'm, I'm seeing a lot of passionate cases against Devonte Smith, uh, including by some people that I definitely respect. I just think that they're wrong. Uh, I think Devonte Smith is clearly going to be a very good NFL receiver. I'll admit that I don't it gives me a little anxiety that I can't quite think of a comparison. Physically, he looks like Paul Richardson. He with does, like but arms. he also physically looks like people like Santonio San Holmes or things like that. And even though Paul Richardson was a bust in the NFL, more or less, you know, as much of a bust as a third round pick or a second round pick can be, um, he was not a guy that I, that my process was high on. And I think that, like. The people who liked Richardson, the people who fell for Richardson, liked him for reasons that are different than what you could say about Devontae Smith. Okay. So uh, it's just like I remember people being like, Paul Richardson, he ran a 4-4, oh, speed and production, age-adjusted production. It's like, yeah, that all was pretty good, but it four was, four it was pretty good by great. Col- 
Oh, not at 175. No, that's no. bad. And and uh, he he wasn't that great in college. Like he was he was uh, I feel like he was a little bit older than usual because he had some weird thing where he was at like UCLA and got ran out before he went to Colorado. Maybe that maybe that's not maybe that's not uh, relevant. But uh, in any case, he wasn't dominant. Uh, but by, by like anything close to the level that Smith was, even by Colorado standards, it's like he was pretty good. But you know he wasn't he wasn't dominating the way Smith did in an offense that produced at as high of a baseline as, as Alabama. So by that, what I what I mean is, if you look at the overall passing production of the Alabama offense and you look at what Devonte Smith did, it's playing above the level and. It's like just like Jamar Chase or talking about how his, his yards per target is over the team baseline, stuff like that. That's all going on with Smith, too. And instead of it being I don't even know who the hell Colorado had at the time. Uh, somebody uh, who's Nelson not good. Spruce. Yeah. Nelson, instead of competing against Nelson Spruce. God, that was, that's a good call. That's probably who it was. Oh, yes. uh, instead of instead of competing with Nelson Spruce for targets, he's competing with Jerry Judy, Henry Ruggs, Irv Smith, uh, was Ridley even there for one? I don't remember. Ridley how was long there wait, for Devontae Smith's freshman year. Yeah, so it's like those that. guys are who he's competing against for targets. And Terry McLaurin, uh, Calvin Ridley should have made this clear. You don't penalize a guy for his age just because he's older than than some other players. You they, there's a logical conclusion that a lot of people reach with their prospect evaluations that a player is literally better than another player if he's younger than them. Right. That is a ridiculous way to understand reality. Come on. Stop just we, we, there's this amazing broader brainwashing going on where people are just totally willing to accept conclusions that they should know are ridiculous just because numbers they don't understand tell them that it's true and it's it's total lapdog stuff. I don't get it. Um, we're, we're all being turned into livestock and it's stuff like this that that's letting it happen. Um, but in any case, you penalize a player for their age if it's that they were unproductive. So, so if, if, if a player is a good version of themselves and they previously were bad and the only thing that changed is they got older than the players they were competing against. Yes, that's a big red flag. That's a Marcel Aitman kind of case. It's like, mm. oh, big breakout. See, Anthony Johnson in Buffalo. He was another one. It's like he's putting up 1,400 yards in Buffalo and people were like, oh, my God, his market share and stuff. And it's like, actually – you guys should have paid more attention to the age in this case because he's like 23 and a half playing against, you know, five foot nine Mac corners who are, you know, 19 years old. And that's the kind of scenario where you worry about it. Not when the reason that they didn't play earlier, especially when, especially in a case like Devontae Smith, where it's like he didn't get on the field and fail to produce. He didn't get on the he field. He won them a Calvin national Ridley, title as a freshman. He won because he well, had yeah. the winning catch. It's a yeah, big and deal. It's like t- Terry McLaurin had the same thing at Ohio State. It's not that he failed at a younger age and only got good because he was older. It was that they had a pipeline of NFL talent ahead of him, and he got his number called when he was incidentally older than 22. And the fact that he dominated, and especially the fact that he dominated and was a plus athlete, was a reason to just give him the benefit of the doubt. It's a lot different than showing up playing poorly until you turn 22 and a half, and then like you play well basically because you know all the answers to the test already. That's not what happened with Devontae Smith. Every time he got on the field, he was very productive, including more productive than guys like Judy and and certainly Ruggs. And uh, this year, I mean, I guess once Wall got hurt, there wasn't like a huge contender there. But it's all the more encouraging for me that his efficiency just stayed way off the charts, even as his share got larger. And Mm -hmm. I know that this this sounds like a cop out. But when I see stuff like that, when I see a player just getting better with the more burden that they're taking on 
And especially when it's the, they produced the way that they did, you know, three years ago when they weren't 21, like he, he had a big year in 2018 too, when all those guys were there and he was out producing the baseline. Uh, so that, that all happened. And to me, it means he gets the benefit of the doubt, even if I can't say why specifically he's so good. It's not like I, I don't have any reason to believe that like, uh, that Devonte Smith is going to run a four, three, five or something. But when you produce the way he has, especially against competition, like he's got, it's enough for me to say like, even though I can't think of what it is, I, I'm sure there's something, or at least I, I'm fair. I'm I'm happy to just assume something will explain this later because right now this is conc- this is pretty compelling to me in the meantime. And I conveniently have a, like Justin Jefferson last year as a lesson for that, and I I didn't apply it enough in that case going into the combine where I was among those people who just looking at his tape thought he might run like a four five five or a four five eight or something because he just doesn't really look that fast, but. We should. I, I should have looked at his numbers, his production, and said, like, man, how how the hell is a slow person going to do any mm, of this? Mm-hmm. I shouldn't have been so surprised that he ran a four four three at the combine. Um, it's it's at some point hubris to think you know how athletic a player is just from what you suspect based on his tape. Like we can't, it, like, we just don't we don't process spatial stimuli like that. We're not good enough at it. So in my YouTube, my internet connection could be worse than yours or someone else is watching (laughs) it. And you know, that distorts your whole thing. Yes. And so, uh, I, I'm content in the meantime to say like, I don't really know why he's good, but I believe that he is. And, uh, with all that said, I, I'm going to go with Waddle ahead of him as a tiebreaker. Just being Waddle actually had the bigger season than Smith, uh, in 2018 before Smith took the wide receiver one sort of distinction in last year and this year. So, uh, maybe that's wrong. Maybe I should say like, well, Waddle never took the big share, so I should penalize him for that. Uh, maybe Waddle was only so explosive as he was because he was in sort of like a favorable part-time role where he wasn't overexposed. That's totally possible. And if Smith is clearly better than Waddle in the NFL, I won't really have a good excuse for having gotten that one wrong. Like I, I, I see, right here that that could be the hint of that particular outcome but i don't see it that way uh because alabama kind of they they would kind of uh alter their target tendencies a little bit from year to year like i remember people made big overly aggressive conclusions about judy just because he had like a really high target share in like his second or third year and it turned out to just be something that they didn't do two years in a row it was like for some reason they just gave him a lot of targets that year and then they Lane Kiffin or whoever changed up the approach a little the next year and Waddle went off and Jerry Judy had like 300 fewer yards. And so when decisions by the coaches hold that much sway, I have to – at least I feel like I need to consider the possibility that the coaches just sort of decided like it's going to be Devontae's year. We'll have Waddle do next year or something. I don't know. Um, but I, I'm not going to – hold it against Waddle that he didn't have a bigger target share in an offense with three first round pick wide receivers and Irv Smith. Uh, and in the other, in, in the meantime, I'm blown away by how productive he was in every one of his seasons. Waddle was just nuts. You like singularly productive in terms of efficiency and explosiveness. Um, and again, you're going to see people say an age complaint about Jalen Waddle cause him and Devonte Smith are basically the same age. If you go look at way that produced, when they were under that age, where they were underclassmen age, they still put up huge numbers. So the age doesn't explain why they were so effective. And the lack of volume before their breakout points is entirely explained, again, by three first-round picks and Irv Smith. So uh, when the guy has done nothing but hit home runs when he's at the plate, I am not 
going to complain about how many home how there's not enough home runs there you know yeah waddle Um, like 14 yards a target as a true freshman in 2018 over 60 targets which actually ended up being his career high in targets yeah and the the next year 20 sorry did you say that was 2018 yes oh yeah that so, so that year was insane to to have in an offense that the Tua already had an insane baseline of a 11.1 yards per attempt, 68.7% of his passes completed. Waddle set the bar higher than even that with the 74 and the 14 yards per target. And he, he did it at 21, at 20 years old, not 21, not 22. He was 20 when he did that, when those other first round picks were competing with him. So that's about as distilled and clear of us as a data point can get in my opinion. And uh, with that, I'm just I'm sold on both Waddle and Smith, and I, I I think anybody who's getting particularly skeptical of them should think seriously about why they're so skeptical of the components of what was probably the second most explosive passing game ever, aside from that 2019 LSU one. And this is something that Alabama has not they haven't reached that you know Everest peak that LSU did in 2019, but they've been more consistent about it the past four years. They've been kind of, they, they almost kind of like showed LSU how to do it before LSU did it. Yes, ex- exactly. That's a, that's a good way to put it like that. Yeah. The consistency of, of Bama's passing game, basically since the 2018 season, uh, once Tua officially took over, I mean, the, over a three year stretch, just unbelievable numbers, unbelievable production from basically every uh, major character in their in their passing game I like rugs or I'm sorry I like waddle over over Devonte Smith as well um, I think the the frame looks a little bit more like what we've seen in the NFL obviously like like we mentioned that that ankle injury that that whether that keeps him from testing or not that we'll have to see but I mean there's a chance that he plays Monday night against Ohio yeah, I kind of hope he doesn't but on the other hand it's like well I guess that's good news if they're considering that I guess it's like we can take the combine for granted but I'm like and just just go get paid just uh, of course but he, I know he's, these he's guys want to win a natty you know yeah, they do um but yeah so I I uh oh I also, I should have mentioned part of why I rank Waddle a little bit ahead of Smith too is that he's listed as seven pounds heavier at three inches shorter yep. so that's a lot it, like he waddle is still smallish uh but that is a pretty big distinction in density it's just I, i'm not going overboard with it because to me it would not be surprising at all if Devonte smith actually measures in at like 5 11 and 7 eighths and 186 or something and if it if it like that's all it takes to make them even again it's not worth freaking out about right now okay now that yeah the, these college measurables are are not uh gospel if if they were, if if Waddle checks in what he's listed at um, in the combine, you know, as far as the the height weight co- uh, comparables would go, I mean, he he's got a similar build to a guy like a, a Brandon Cooks or or a uh, T Y Hilton. I was thinking T Y, yeah, and uh, granted, like Cooks is sick, and he was an amazing college player at Oregon State before he was a probably underrated NFL receiver who just keeps getting stuck with uh, well not stuck with a bad quarterback in Houston's case but before that he kept dealing with kind of uh like uh Saints just traded him to trade him I guess but like Brady and sucked in in New England and then Goff sucked at the Rams and people kind of didn't give Cooks as much credit as they should have and maybe I'm not giving him enough credit by saying that T.Y. Hilton is better but I, I kind of just feel like T.Y. Hilton is better and I was a big fan of T.Y. Hilton when he was coming out of Florida International. I'm I'm not hindsighting that one. I thought he should have been a first round pick instead of a third. And they aren't. They don't have the same career trajectories like him and Waddle. They're not used the same way. Like they 
Hilton had a really bad quarterback and they had to get him a lot of like end arounds and stuff like that because uh, they couldn't actually throw the ball like they can to Waddle. But the theme that you see with both of them college tape wise and production wise and athleticism wise is that you're, you're probably looking at like five, nine and a half, 180, maybe 185. And yeah, with that, there's like the specter of Marquise Brown and his, you know, pop Warner looking frame getting rattled <laughs> by NFL corners. But if you look at T.Y. Hilton, you'd see in his career it never really affected him because it's just you don't really get a shot at him. And Waddle's one of those guys. It's just he's you're just in the process of just losing track of him every snap. Yeah. So it's it's yeah. The guys like that just have game breaking, game changing speed to them. So um, yeah. It, in, in Hilton's case, we've obviously obviously seen it as well. And, and Waddle. I mean, the dude is just unbelievable. I think just in general, I, watching his tape uh, this morning, like going back and looking at it from a more like critical, like scouting eye, uh, air quotes on scouting on my part. Um, just, just a guy that you have to be terrified every single time he he gets the ball or anytime he just lines up in general, whether it's in the slot, whether it's outside. Anytime that he has the ball in his hands, it's it's scary, and it's it's also just scary to me that he can suffer an injury as as bad as as it was against Tennessee in October and and like basically be ready for full football like game action activity in early yeah, January that, that injury sucked yes that was, that was like one of the lowest I was in a, in a year that sucked I was like maybe the most nauseous as I was at any point during that I just like I thought his career was over or something I thought it was like Tyrone pro throw again and that was so bad too uh you know I hope I hope he keeps his comeback thing going because I, I really hope that's not the last we've seen of him. I'd really like to see the 2018 Jalen Waddle get a shot in the NFL. Amen. Absolutely. So, um, yeah, here, here's hoping that, that, you know, that that's just a speed bump more than anything else. Um, but either way, but both of these two, you know, high ticketed Alabama guys will be, uh, you know, among the first five receivers taken. Um, we got another teammate here, this one from LSU, Terrace Marshall, um, someone who, you know, I, I think that you have it correct in having him in your top five. I think that among, you know, in, in a class that has a lot of guys with a lot of big names, I mean, Rondale Moore, Amonra St. Brown, uh, Rashad Bateman, Diami Brown. I mean, the, the list goes on of guys that, that people, I'd say, generate a little bit more discussion on, on draft Twitter than, than Terrace Marshall. But it's like he's sitting out there in plain sight. He was the number three uh, receiver recruit in the class of 2018, which was just a, a ridiculous class. It also featured Jamar Chase. Jamar Chase, you know, as it turns out, was comically underrated by by the recruiting services or, or whatever. But either way, man, like M Marshall has been as good as he was supposed to be, if not better. But that I, I think the way that things went at LSU this year, people just stopped really paying that, that close yeah. national attention to them. So especially when you consider how extreme the drop-off was from last year and you look at last year and who are the first guys you think of? You think of Justin Jefferson, you think of Jamar Chase, you think of Joe Burrow. And Thaddeus part of that is Moss, because – Clyde Edwards-Hilaire got a lot of the hype too. That it, like I heard so much more about those two when people would talk about LSU. I never really heard anything about Marshall. I had to ask you like why isn't anyone talking about this guy? Yes, and and you know the, the fact – all of it was was Marshall just kind of – 
you know, getting Wally pipped a little bit. He broke his foot against Vanderbilt and, you know, wasn't able to come back until much later on in the season. So, of course, his numbers did. Yeah, he broke his foot against, um, yeah, Vandy, like midway through his, his sophomore year. So that's why he only played 12 games as opposed to 15. That's insane that he came back from a broken foot that fast. And I just assumed he was like their wide receiver three that year. That's wild. Um, yeah, so he is only going to be 21 in June, and he, which is to say his featured seasons were when he was about 19 and a full quarter and 20 and a quarter. And in both cases, he was exceptionally productive. It was admittedly in the shadow of Jamar Chase, Justin Jefferson in, in 2019, and you know, Thaddeus Moss, Clyde Edwards-Solaire, they did take up a big share of that offense too. And I suppose like the market share lens of analysis might be harsh to Marshall, but it's getting the same completely – like I don't care. Like I'm totally passing that one for the same reasons as with the Alabama guys. I am not going to complain about a player's market share when the only way their market share could have been higher is if they took it from Justin Jefferson and Jamar Chase. That's ridiculous. So if that's true, then I'm just looking at – uh, well, we can probably presume that his athleticism is at least average, given that he's a five-star recruit. I don't have any particular theory of what kind of athlete he is, but uh, based on five-star recruit, based on his production, it's probably above average. And as long as he confirms that, then he's an easy first-round grade for me. If he tests below average as an athlete, then he can slip, yes, because this is a class that has a lot of depth. Guys like Rashad Bateman, Diami Brown, like you were saying, and Monrasse Brown – I feel anxious about listing them, Rondell Moore, lower than this. But if Marshall is as good of an athlete as as vaguely they are, his production puts them puts them ahead of them too. So uh, he had below baseline by slightly production when he was playing 19 years old in the, uh, the 2019 offense. But it's one of these cases where you can tell that the baseline is only meaningful to the point that it's like, well, he wasn't quite as good as Chase. And, and Jefferson, because he still was good. He caught 69.7% of his targets at 10.2 yards per target. And the thing is, he also is one of those guys who clearly would have had a way yar- higher yards per target if it wasn't for the insane touchdown production. Yeah, that is touchdowns 13- counting against <laughs> He had 13 touchdowns on 46 catches. Oh, my God. That's one of those things that's going to get passed over because of, like, market share concerns. It's like, please, think about this. Like, yeah, 13 like a- touchdowns on – on 46 recept, uh, sorry, 13 touchdowns and 46 receptions. That's insane. That's 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 such a reliable scoring pace. And you have to add like at least a couple yards to the yards per target. And in that case, for me, it goes way over the baseline. Like he had a higher touchdown frequency than even Chase did. You know, like quite a bit. Um, he, if he had as many touchdowns as, or sorry, if he had as many catches as Chase, it would have projected for like 26 or something like that. Um, not that he would have sustained it, but it's just to show it's like. The, the lack of volume is not because he didn't play well enough. He played very – he played as well as he basically could have. Um, so he did that. He gets points for that. I am not going to penalize him for anything. And then this year, uh, he like just got ignored because LSU's offense sucked. It's like they're, they're like last year he got ignored because there were those other guys. And then this year it's like, who cares? It's LSU. They suck now. Bro, right. isn't Yeah, they, they come and out. They, they, lo- they lose suck. to Miss State. They, they, they sucked. They were – I did not enjoy watching LSU this year. the thing is year. his his numbers stayed the same. He caught 68 points of his uh, targets at 10.4 yards per target with 10 touchdowns on 48 receptions in an offense that completed only 60.2% at 7.6. So the percentage, 8.5 points higher – uh, completion percentage and the yards per target was 1.8 yards higher per attempt while also scoring basically all of their touchdowns. So he could not have played better. Yeah. So basically bottom line, uh, however one you want to look at it, you know, eight, 
age age adjusted or just overall like you look at the baseline of the offense um recruiting pedigree he checks the boxes in so many different ways that uh, in more meaningful ways than than anyone's knocks against him you know may, maybe being the third out out of the uh, most productive guys in, in 2019 or you know just kind of a, a people's choice to not really pay attention to LSU this year. Mar- Marshall, however you slice it, has been really good. And he, if he stamps it at the combine, then um, yeah, he'll he'll stick in the top five for sure. He he's an underrated guy who's just kind of sitting out in the open, who is clearly very good. And I don't think enough people um, are are hip to it yet, which is weird because you, you can say that about guys coming from smaller programs, blah blah blah. But kind of surprising for for a LSU receiver like Jefferson was but mm. it's like he's a five you the recruiting doinks were probably you know hyping this guy longer than they would have been chase or anything so I, yeah. I I almost if I go back to my like uh spreadsheet from projecting the 2019 season I probably had Marshall ahead of chase as far as you know everyone like that, probably that receiver did. pecking order because I am a bit of a recruiting wonk to begin with um okay Last guy we'll hit on this episode, Chris Olave out of Ohio State. Um, he's someone that I feel like isn't going to wow you with, with his um, like like you don't watch his tape and you're not like wow he's like the toolsiest dude I've ever seen. But right. what he is is so polished and he's been so polished since his freshman year. I mean when he was playing uh, with with the with that loaded. Uh, senior class of, of Ohio State receivers that had McLaurin and, and Campbell and, and all those guys. He was making plays against Michigan late in that season. Like he he was being counted on yeah. maybe so, more more so than some of those guys as a true freshman. He he didn't have quite the five star pedigree. He was a good good recruit, um, especially you know by by pretty much any standards. But like Cameron Babb, I think what was a higher rated recruit. Yeah, in that well, Ohio that was State like class. a three star. Yeah, so like he's not even that classic Ohio State. Like Garrett Wilson, it, more more so fits that bill who's there um right now like spelling him but when when i thought about it i I guess my comparison for olave and i i i guess his age is is uh, a better factor here and you know because ridley was doing this when he was a a way overaged freshman at alabama but i think that there's a lot of similarities between olave and, and calvin ridley I mean, that could be – this is one of those guys who I kind of don't feel like I know specifically what he is either. And basically for the reason you said, it's like when you watch him, it just looks so easy that it almost feels like the defense is just not doing a good job. Like he doesn't look obviously fast. He doesn't look obviously quick. He doesn't do you know head fakes that make the cornerback just like fall over. But it's like over and over again when you watch him, these corners just kind of get – confused or something covering him it's like they just go the wrong direction and maybe if it happens one or two times you think it's a fluke but i can't consider it a fluke when it happens for two years and when in those two years uh including like a 19 uh, an age 19 season last in 2019 where he led the yardage volume on the team and the touchdown volume on the team and outplayed the baseline of the team when he was competing against three seniors, one of which was KJ Hill, the other was uh, the Ben Victor and Austin Mack, and two of those guys are on NFL rosters all year. The third, uh, Victor, was on a practice squad all year. Um, lesser analysts went into last year believing KJ Hill was going to be like a top 40 pick or something. They were wrong, and it was easy to see that they were going to be wrong ahead of time, but still, KJ Hill was a fourth-year guy 
uh, or fifth year guy actually. Yep. And Chris Olave at 19 just was clearly better all year. And then this year he was uh, so in that year I guess I should just mention like he he caught eight 849 receiving yards, 12 touchdowns on 76 targets, and that's like. Uh, I don't have the catch number on here, but it's. I think the catch percentage was a little bit below baseline, but the yardage, even before considering the touchdown rate, was way above uh, the the team baseline. And when you can do that at 19 against three NFL receivers, you again, that's one of those like data points where it's just something is clear here, and you should hold on to it and not try to overthink everything else. Like try to remember this because this can only happen if certain things are true. You can't say that about everything else that all the other information that you come into contact with. There's a lot of stuff that's like interesting and maybe even has some sort of insight, but doesn't ultimately mean anything. This is one of those data points that means something and it has to mean something. Maybe it doesn't mean he's a star, but I think that it's more likely the case that he, and I know that I was talking about Justin, I was invoking Justin Jefferson when talking about Devonte Smith. That wasn't so much to directly compare them as much to talk about just the general principle of if a guy is so productive when you know for a fact that he's playing against the highest level of competition, maybe just kind of assume he's a little bit athletic, even if he doesn't obviously look like it. I'm totally doing that with Chris Olav here. And I think the Justin Jefferson parallel rings pretty strongly further for the fact that he was a three-star recruit that no one really cared about wasn't favored going into this powerhouse school and then he soundly like outproduced well, not everybody like jefferson didn't you know outproduce jamar chase but he he didn't do worse than him and, and Olav just made kj hill like not a, not a real thing in the offense as a fifth year guy mm-hmm. so i think that Olav he's got that justin jefferson thing going on where uh you know he's, he's not big he's not he's not tall he's not heavy He's not fast. He's not quick, but he's enough. Uh, he, he has enough going in like each category that it just kind of adds up. And then there's probably with both cases, him and Jefferson, there's just like this innate spatial intelligence where they basically are good at not being tracked by people. It's hard to follow them if they if they want to not be caught. They're good at not being caught. They're good at. Uh, knowing intuitively without necessarily even explaining it to you or somebody else, like how they do it. They just kind of, to them, it's like, uh, well, I had to get past him. And like for them getting past him is just kind of like a muscle reflex. They don't even really need to think about it. They just know how to lose someone in a way that we can't really quantify and they can't really explain, but in a way that we should just assume is present based on the way that over and over they keep outplaying these other people who we know more or less how good they are. And, and he, can't keep out playing them over and over the way he does unless there's some ultimate explanation for it yeah i I think that's it that's a great way to put it yeah so i mean even if it's not glaringly obvious when when you put on the film with with the lava you look at the production you look at who's around him um and and i think that you know and that's not to say the film isn't impressive it's just you you wouldn't come away from it like being like this guy's a freak show necessarily You, you you know he's he's just really really refined and has been since he was a true freshman who like you said you know was it was a three-star was an underrated guy that that had a bunch of other guys in his own recruiting class that were you know that i think if you looked at like the ohio state message boards a lot more buzz about the you know the cameron browns of the world going to columbus than than chris olave or cameron babb and it it was olave the whole time that that ended up being the, the guy and he's yeah he's he's just Really high floor. Maybe the ceiling's not not great, but I, I think that um, you know he he will at least have some staying power in the NFL. And I, I'm interested in, in that 
Justin Jefferson parallel um, that you laid out as well. Um, anything else you, you want to add on for, for these guys before we head out? No, uh, check out the article if you want to see more. There's there's definitely a lot to talk about with this class, and it, it it's as much as we cut it off at those five. It's not because the the next ten are any slouches. You know, there's there's a lot of explosiveness in this class. Yeah, it's it's an awesome receiver class. Again, we kind of like continue to be uh, spoiled by the these re- receiver classes that that are coming out uh, each of the last few years. That this year, no drop off from what it was a year ago. Uh, really excited to to dive deeper into this as draft season gets closer but of course we will also keep things rolling as far as the nfl playoffs go um, as long as those are going on too so that's going to round it out for mario puig i'm john mccackney thank you for listening to the rotowire nfl podcast Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.